0: Welcome to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Thank you for joining us for this in-depth study of God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources or to read her blog, visit her website at intheword.com. And now, Michelle. Father God, we thank you so much for drawing us together. And I pray as always that I'd not get in the way of what you plan to say, but that you would speak and lead us into all truth. It is in Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen. Peter was one of the most important characters of the New Testament. He's also one of my favorites. Because he lived and ministered alongside Christ, he would have encountered God's incredible grace on a daily basis. The Gospels and the Book of Acts are full of his experiences. And if there's one life in which we see the transformative power of God's grace at work, it's Peter's. Peter originally went by the name Simon. He lived in Capernaum and was a fisherman along with his brother Andrew and his friends James and John. In fact, he was doing just that when his life took a different direction. Matthew chapter 4 verse 18 says that Jesus found Peter and his brother Andrew by the Sea of Galilee and called to them, Come, follow me and I will send you out to fish for people. Luke 5 adds that they were washing their nets on the shore after an unsuccessful night of fishing. Jesus got into Simon's boat and asked him to put out from the land a little so that he could better speak to the large crowd that was following him. After speaking to the crowd, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. to let down the nets again, despite the fact that they were exhausted and had given up work for the day. He was willing to obey Christ, even though common sense surely said that it would be wasted effort. And that one act of obedience changed everything. Verse 8 tells us, When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. In that moment, the proud, self-sufficient, skeptical Simon Peter saw in Christ a goodness, a rightness far beyond his own, and he was brought to his knees before him. Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on you will fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on the shore, left everything, and followed him. Consider the challenge Christ gave them here. He would teach them to fish for people instead of fish. I'm touched by their immediate willingness to leave everything to follow him. If only we would be as quick to follow him when he calls. But their response wasn't without a certain element of risk. It required faith. Simon not only walked away from the large catch that day, he walked away from the only life he'd ever known, in order to become something he'd never been. He had been a successful fisherman. What kind of fisher of men would he turn out to be? And what did that even mean? Throughout all the following gospel accounts, we see Peter on that journey. He followed Jesus imperfectly, in fits and starts, sometimes getting the point, sometimes not, responding to Christ's gentle and not-so-gentle rebukes, receiving his forgiveness and redirection more times than we can count. We actually begin to see ourselves in Peter's story. We're going to briefly look at just three of his many experiences as he became who Christ had called him to be. The very first occurred during one of the high points of his spiritual journey when they were at a place known as Caesarea Philippi. The location is significant because it was a place where false gods had long been worshipped. There was a famous water-filled cave there where people were, the Greek god Pan, the god associated with nature, shepherds, and flocks. In fact, human sacrifices were often thrown into that cave, from the top of the cliff, leading many to believe that it was a gateway to hell itself. But Pan was not the only false god worshipped there. Herod the Great had constructed a marble temple dedicated to the worship of the Roman emperor just outside of the cave, and there were many other altars to false gods carved into the cliff face as well. In truth, a person could not think of Caesarea Philippi without thinking of all the gods there were to choose from. It was here that Jesus asked his disciples a critical question, a question that would mark the turning point of his whole ministry. Everything prior to that day was in preparation for the question he asked them here, and everything after that day was in preparation for the cross. So what was the question? Well, according to Matthew chapter 16, verse 13, Jesus began by asking his followers, who do people say the Son of Man is? As he did at other times, Jesus referred to himself as the Son of Man, which was a title for the Messiah coming from the Old Testament writings of the prophet Daniel. Notice that Jesus first asks who other people say that he is, and the disciples reveal some of the current theories people had about him, answering some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. Though everyone agreed that there was something quite different about Jesus, There were many ideas and theories among the people about who he might really be. And then Jesus asked the twelve the critical question that would change things forever. But what about you? Who do you say I am? Simon Peter was the only one to answer him. In verse 16, he said, You are the Messiah, the Son of the living God. I love that Jesus made it such a personal question, for in the end, what really matters is not what others say about Jesus, but rather who we personally know him to be. It's a question each of us must answer for ourselves. Peter's reply reveals that though he might not have fully understood everything, everything about Christ. He knew that all the opinions people had of him were inadequate and fell far short of the truth. Peter knew that Jesus was more than any prophet, and in declaring him to be the son of the living God, Peter was in fact acknowledging that Jesus was equal to God himself. Can I just say that Jesus' response to the statement of Peter's is critical? You see, if he was not vine. If Jesus was merely a good teacher or a good person, as a faithful Jewish man, Jesus would have been obligated by the law of Moses to correct Peter for speaking heresy. But Jesus did not correct him. Instead, in verse 17, Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my Father in heaven. And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades, or hell, will not overcome it. We first need to note that according to Jesus' own words in verse 17, It is God the Father himself who has revealed this truth to Peter's heart. It wasn't just Peter's normal impulsiveness here. No, God had communicated himself to Peter and had made himself known. There's something else here, though, that we must be sure not to miss. Do you see in verse 17 that Jesus first called him by his given name, Simon, son of Jonah, and then by the name Peter in verse 18? Why did Jesus use both names? Perhaps it was to remind Peter of their very first encounter years earlier. John chapter 1 verse 42 tells us that when Andrew first brought his brother Simon to Jesus, Before they left their nets to follow him, as we saw in Matthew 4 and Luke 5, Jesus had looked at him and said, So you are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. As John explained there, Cephas and Peter mean the same thing, rock. One is the Aramaic word and the other the Greek. Some scholars have pointed out that there wasn't any record of that name Peter being used among Jewish families before this. So Jesus was giving him a new name, a name that indicated something very important about him. And from that day on, he was known as Simon Peter, Simon the Rock. It could be that Jesus was saying here in Matthew 16, Do you remember what I called you, what I said you were to be? What did Jesus say to him as Peter then in verse 18? He said, And I tell you that you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. The gates of Hades will not overcome it. We know that there are differences among Christians as to what actually Christ meant here, but I think we can all acknowledge that at the very least, that Jesus was marking Peter out in a unique way in this text. He was the first disciple to openly confess Jesus as the Son of God. And in the years to come, he would be the chief of all the apostles, Their acknowledged leader. He would be the one who first preached at Pentecost, the one who opened the kingdom to the Gentiles, and the one who led the early church as it grew and expanded. And in the ages since, every individual who has personally declared Jesus as the Messiah, the very Son of the living God, who has made the same discovery as Peter, is another stone added into that eternal building that is the church. Standing before the massive rock face and the water-filled cavern known as a gateway to hell that was associated with so many false gods and false religions, Jesus pointed out the true rock and declared that the church he would build on it would be both indestructible and victorious. The fact that there is still an historical body of Christ existing since the time he founded it, that there are believers in every nation of the world proclaiming the gospel and being salt and light, is really proof of Christ's words here. Every barrier that Satan has put in the way, every offensive he has mounted, Every fortress he has built has not been able to withstand the presence and the preaching of the church of Jesus Christ. The enemy's efforts ultimately fail. The church does not and will not. What grace! From the very beginning, Jesus not only saw Peter for who he was, but also for who he would become. And here, in Matthew 16, he reminded his somewhat unstable disciple of the name he'd been given, and he gave him a glimpse of the role he would play that would call those things out of him. But the path of true discipleship and transformation has many bumps along the way, and Peter still had some to encounter. In amongst his moments of great faith, He also had moments of great failure. Let's look at one of those. In Luke 22, we're invited to look in on a very precious time of fellowship that Jesus had with his closest followers. On the night before he was arrested, Jesus and his 12 disciples gathered for a dinner that has come to be known as the Last Supper. When they arrived at the borrowed room, Jesus tenderly washed the feet of all twelve from the dirt of their journey. The king of kings and lord of lords humbled himself, taking on the role of the lowliest servant in the house to do what no one else had been willing to do. Though they were all somewhat surprised, Peter objected and refused at first to let the lord wash his feet only to later offer his entire body for washing once Jesus explained that it had to be done. After the meal, Jesus revealed that someone at the table would betray him to the authorities and immediately the shocked disciples began to question among themselves which of them it might be who would do this terrible thing. It was like a kind of echo making its way around the table. Lord, surely it isn't me. Oh, surely, Lord, not I. And quite soon, things deteriorated into an argument as to which of them was considered to be the greatest of his followers. Forgetting all about their master's imminent betrayal, They began competing with each other about their own faithfulness. We're not told that Simon Peter was getting loud at this point, but I think he really might have been, because Jesus suddenly speaks specifically to him and warns, "'Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift all of you as wheat, "'but I have prayed for you, Simon,' that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned back, strengthen your brothers. But he replied, Lord, I am ready to go with you to prison and to death. Jesus answered, I tell you, Peter, before the rooster crows today, you will deny three times that you know me. Peter thought so highly of himself and what he was able to do in his own strength. He never considered the possibility of failure, but Jesus did. Those words of Christ have such a profound effect on my heart. Do you see how Jesus addresses Peter by his old name again? Here is the old Simon, competitive, willful, full of self-confidence, sure that he would never let Christ down, so sure that he was ready to go with him to prison and to death but Jesus knows how Satan schemes against those who follow him. He knew that Satan had asked to sift all of them as wheat, but especially the headstrong Peter. Jesus knew that Peter's good intentions were not strong enough to face what was coming, and that before dawn broke, Peter would deny knowing him three times. But Christ lovingly revealed I have prayed for you, Simon, that your faith may not fail. Christ knew that this would indeed be a terrible test for Peter, but he also knew that though Peter would fail in this one test, ultimately his faith would not. He would return and his newfound humility would enable him to strengthen other believers. The good news for Peter and for us is that Christ knows exactly how we're going to be tested and when those tests will come. And as our great, gracious high priest, Christ prays for us. Many of us are familiar with how the story played out. Later that evening, Judas Iscariot betrayed Christ to the authorities and Jesus was then arrested while at prayer in the Garden of Gethsemane. All the disciples ran for their lives and though Peter followed Christ and his captors to the high priest's house, he remained at a distance outside by the fire in the courtyard, denying that he knew Jesus three times before the rooster crowed just as Jesus had said. When he realized what he had done, Peter's heart was filled with crushing defeat. He felt all of the emptiness of his earlier bravado. In the end, he had not had the strength to do what he was so sure that he would, and he wept the bitter, sorrowful tears of failure. He watched as Christ, who had no sin, was pronounced guilty. The Lord was stripped, beaten, and then nailed to the cross where he died. His body was placed in a tomb. At that point, I'm sure Peter thought that everything he had committed the last three years of his life to was over. But it wasn't. Three days later, the faithful woman found Christ's tomb was empty. And of course, Peter was the disciple who rushed in to see for himself. For 40 days, the resurrected Christ met with them, reassuring them, teaching them and filling them with his spirit. Though the disciples were given incredible joy and renewed hope after seeing the Lord alive again, Peter wondered what, if any, of this meant for his future. After all, he'd failed the Lord. He had deserted Jesus and denied knowing him not once or twice, but three times. None of the disciples knew exactly what to do next. And so, according to John 21, the fishes of men returned to the Sea of Galilee to fish for fish. And here, Peter experienced once again the incredible grace of God. After a long night of effort with nothing but empty nets to show for it, a figure called to them from the shore, suggesting that they would be successful if they changed their strategy. Now, I'm not sure if they immediately felt how similar the situation was to that day years before when Jesus had first called them to follow him. But they wearily cast their nets in a new direction and caught so many fish that John recognized the person on the water's edge and cried out, It is the Lord! Thankfully, their boat was not far from shore because Peter got so excited he immediately jumped overboard to go to Jesus. Jesus invited Peter and the others to join him at a fire that he'd kindled and he served them breakfast. I can't help but wonder if the fire on the shore that morning reminded Peter of the fire in the high priest's courtyard on the night he'd denied Christ. You see, it's as if Jesus had set the stage for Peter to remember the shameful events of that fateful night. Because after they shared their meal of fish around the fire, Jesus began to talk with Peter. In John 21 verse 15, we're told, When they'd finished eating, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? Yes, Lord, he said. You know that I love you. Jesus said, Feed my lambs. Again, Jesus said, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He answered, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. Jesus said, Take care of my sheep. Calling him by his old name, Simon, Jesus asks if Peter loves him. In these first two questions, the Greek word that Jesus used for love is agapao, meaning to love completely with all that you are as an act of your will. This is the totally unselfish, unconditional love that is associated with God himself. However, Peter responds with a lesser word for love. He uses philos from the word phileo, meaning to love with affection or fondness in which emotions play a more important role than will. It's almost as if each time Peter was saying, Yes, Lord, you know I have brotherly affection for you. I imagine that before his denial of Christ, Peter might have boldly answered Jesus with that word agapao, but he does not do that now. For Peter has been humbled by his failure. Verse 17. The third time Jesus said to him, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was hurt because Jesus asked him the third time, do you love me? He said, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said, feed my sheep. Very truly, I tell you, when you were younger, you dressed yourself and went where you wanted But when you are old, you will stretch out your hands and someone else will dress you and lead you where you do not want to go. Jesus said this to indicate the kind of death by which Peter would glorify God. Then he said to him, follow me. Peter is hurt at Christ's repeated question, perhaps not realizing that each question corresponded to one of his denials. And Christ very graciously gave him a threefold commission. He told Peter to feed his lambs, to take care of his sheep, and to feed his sheep. Of course, Jesus was not really speaking of animals, but rather his flock, the church. Do you see that Jesus never asks Peter if he loves the sheep? He only ever asks if Peter loves him. Sometimes, you know, we think that church leadership falls to those who love the people more. No, to be a leader in God's church, you really need to love the shepherd. The people belong to him and we are to take care of his flock out of love for Christ, even more than out of love for them. But there's one more thing we shouldn't miss here. When Jesus asks Peter the third time, do you love me? Jesus changed his word for love from agapao to match Peter's, and he used the word philos. Amazingly, Christ seems to meet Peter where he is. Christ's final words to Peter are the same as his first so many years before. Follow me. When Peter answered that call in the past, he'd been quite full of himself. He was confident, self-willed, quick to correct the Lord and even object to his directions. But he's not the same person now. He understands what it means to follow Christ in a much deeper way, without pride, without self, without his own ideas, even if that would take him to martyrdom. And you know, that is the same call Jesus speaks to us today. Have you answered that deeper call? For it is there that we become the followers God has designed us to be, even through our failures. Peter did become that fisher of men and leader of the church as Christ had promised. He preached the gospel at Pentecost and 3,000 people were added to their number. He brought the Gentiles into the kingdom when he willingly entered the home of the Roman centurion Cornelius and preached to his entire family. He faced down the sorcerer Simon, brought the faithful Dorcas back to life and went to believers scattered in the dispersion. And Peter left us two epistles in the scriptures just to name a few of the ways in which God used him. And all of this was ultimately made possible because though he had failed, his faith had not. He had returned to Christ, who by grace is the God of second chances. So what can we learn from Peter's many encounters with God's grace We learn that the God of all grace calls us to follow him for he sees us not only for who we are but also for who he wants to make us. He knows that we will be tested and as our gracious high priest in heaven, as Hebrews tells us, he prays for us. He never leaves us alone in our trials. And because of his amazing grace, He is always and forever the God of second chances. He never gives up on us, but always extends his grace to us when we fall. Our part is to pick ourselves up and never stop following him. May God bless you. Thank you for listening to In the Word with Michelle Telfer. Join us next week as we continue our study from God's Word, the Bible. For more of Michelle's resources, visit her website at intheword.com.